Gavin Newsom made some remarks about um, supporting some type of Costa Hawkins reform. What what would you expect him to do around rent control? Well, if it's anything as to what he did for homelessness in San Francisco, I'm a bit I'm a bit scared. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon from the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, we will be walking through housing on the ballot. We got an election in a couple days, Liam. This is going to be a nice long stroll, Matt, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Have you voted yet? I have, yes, because I was tired of getting the, the mail and the calls and the text messages now. I'm getting text messages. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want that. Do those stop? Yes, you... that's the point. That's why really? you. That's why you vote. See, in June, I I voted really early, but that was bad because stuff came out about candidates and issues later on, and I was regretful about not knowing these things. But now I decided to wait a while, maybe get a little bit of the advertisement, see how that was going, and see if there was late breaking things. But once once you turn your ballot, and the, ca- the candidates or the campaigns know. Yeah, they, they check, and so the, why would they waste so, their money on you? So my text messages are mostly for fundraising. So I, that's why. I, oh, well, yeah. then you've been on list before. I, you know, I have friends at certain places who who have put me on list. <laughs> I think unwillingly. I know unwillingly. So thank you, friends at the RNC and DNC. So we will be going through housing on the ballot. We'll be talking about. The governor's race and how that could impact housing. We'll be talking about the state legislature. And then most, I guess, relevantly, probably, we'll be talking about the four uh, housing-related initiatives that are on the ballot. Yeah. So this is your chance. If you're still studying up and you're a one-issue housing voter, you've come to the right place. And we also recommend we have done in-depth podcasts on a handful of these initiatives Uh, before. So most notably Prop 5 and Prop 10, which we will also be talking about in great detail this time. But we recommend you check those podcasts out. And let's both tweet those just to be like, okay, if you really want to go deep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we're we're both writers, so we write things. um, And we've written extensively about, uh, again, predominantly uh, Proposition 5 and Proposition 10. And uh, for today's guests, um, yet again, we will be uh, talking about the possible expansion of rent control in California, and who do we have? This we have fortnight? from the the yes on uh, Prop Ten side, Damian Goodman, um, and from the no side, Steve Maviglio. These are the uh, spokespeople for the campaigns. So before we get to our guests and to walking through the ballot, a couple quick plugs. Um, the project I was working on with. Uh, public radio stations around California, looking at the legacy of Prop 13 40 years later, is out. Came out last week. Definitely check it out. It's a really beautiful layout by, I'll give her a plug, Dana Am I Here uh, at KPCC. Hopefully I pronounced her last name right. If you're curious what Prop 13 actually is, what it's done, and how it's impacted one block in North Oakland, check it out. And what I really enjoyed about your your stories, uh, Matt, is that for the real Prop 13 heads, the real heads out there, you did an interview with Stephanie Nordlinger. Oh, she was the best. Tell us who she is. She was the uh, woman in Los Angeles who sued to overturn Prop 13, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court. Even, the no U.S. Less. Supreme Court. Yes. And she lost. <laughs> she. What's interesting about her was that she bought her house in late 80s in L.A. She's in the same house in Baldwin Hills. That house is worth a lot now. She's basically the, the poster child for Prop 13 in a lot of ways. She's mm-hmm. a senior. She's living on her savings. Still not a fan of Prop 13. 
Still it, not a fan. It's a very interesting interview. Yeah. yeah. Um, she's great. Let's go to our most popular segment um, in all of California housing podcastery. The avocado of the Fortnite. And what do we have for the avocado of the Fortnite? This fortnight, Liam. So this is a particularly whimsical uh, look at uh, a California housing issue, in my mind. Um, back to some of my old stomping grounds in San Diego, where there is a proposed 78-unit low-income housing project on vacant land owned by the San Diego Housing Commission in a wealthy neighborhood in San Diego near La Beach called Point Loma. And uh, you got some residents there not happy. Uh, sure. Start, they created this uh, over a minute long video, super high production value. Um, people out there, little kids riding bikes, they're like touching wheat. It's very, it's all, mm. all a lot going on. Mm. A lot of wheat down in San Diego. <laughs> Apparently. I don't know why the wheat came in, but there was touching. Um, so they call themselves <laughs> Save Famosa Canyon, and they really, they say they want to protect open space, uh, dirt, bike trail, uh, what's on mm-hmm. the land. And they have an out. They have an about us page, which I found fascinating. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna read from it because I think it really makes their point about what they're all about pretty pretty clearly. Go for it. We the residents feel neglected that we were not asked to participate in this decision until it was already well underway. There has been lots of debates on next door. I'm sure there has. Yes, and community Facebook groups focusing only on a small part of the issue, the affordable housing. Residents have been labeled with the acronym NIMBY, not in my backyard. That is just not the case. We are residents against development, whether it's low-income affordable housing or another multi-million dollar condo development. Mm. Mm. So to translate, they're not NIMBYs because they're not just against development in their backyard. They're against all development, development for poor people, development for rich people, they're is, against it. Is that what they're saying? Or are they saying we're not NIMBYs because we don't just oppose low-income development. We oppose all development. Well, both. I think, yeah. there's, I think there's layers. You know, yeah. this, this, this statement can, contains multitudes, in yeah. my opinion. Well, what, so what, yeah. what does NIMBY mean to you? It, opposing development. So just opposing development, period, not necessarily just opposing affordable housing. Yeah. I think if you oppose – I mean, there's – because it's, it's, it's not, not – you know, it's not – I mean, I'm just trying to think of an acronym. Niambi. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't working. Yeah. Think you got it, Mm. but doesn't roll off the tongue. You know, the same way. (laughs) You realize, like, our prospects of ever moving into any of these nice places now are limited because they're gonna come come for us. Well, I mean, like, they'll post on next door. Hey, this guy down the street. Isn't going to be joining the neighborhood watch. Also, next door, just the most influential uh, political play. Everyone's talking yes. about Twitter, but yeah, no, next door, next door has got it in spades, man. Are That's you on place. next door? No, me neither. No, I feel like I actually should. be. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're right. Like, if you want to see the 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 underbelly of what's going on in your community, that's where it is, man. Yeah, yeah. And uh, P.S. We're looking for advertisers on the podcast <laughs> next door. Um. I don't know if, if we have your target demo, but keep us in mind. All right, so that concludes our avocado of the fortnight. Um, let's move on to the election. And we let's talk about the top of the ticket, um, the race for governor. We did a podcast looking at the governor's race and what it means for housing. Um, we will put that in the show notes as well. We recommend you check that out. Um, but, Liam, what's going on in the governor's race? So let's 
recap a bit. We have two candidates, a Democrat and a Republican. The Democrat is uh, current Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, a former mayor of San Francisco, and he's running against Republican John Cox, a businessman who lives now in Rancho Santa Fe, uh, which is uh, just north of San Diego. And what what struck me um, initially about their the two of them housing plays, both of them have talked a lot about housing. There's there's no getting around that. I think it's part of a broader uh, pitch on both sides for affordability issues in the state, mm-hmm. right, one way or another. And what's surprising to me, or initially surprising, sort of surface level, is that in broad broad strokes, these folk, these both of these guys have uh, relatively similar policies in the sense that they both are calling for a lot more housing production than we have in the state right now, mm-hmm. um, and that's their sort of both of their primary solutions to dealing with the housing crisis. And uh, and yeah. just to add on to that, a another interesting wrinkle to that is that polling from. Yes. The uh, L.A. Times slash USC Dornsife has revealed that that strategy, most Californians don't believe it. Yeah, pe- people don't like it. I mean, we did an inter- a poll, um, and, you know, I will acknowledge some criticism over um, yes. uh, sort of the options that were given in the poll yeah, and how they could be interpreted. Methodology broadly. Methodology broadly. I, I acknowledge it. I get it. Uh, everyone who tweeted and emailed me, you know, I—, I I, you're not wrong, uh, so I concede. Uh, I can see that there were some issues with it, but I, 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 I do think you could. Uh, there is the broad takeaway. I think is is probably still relevant, which is that you know we asked, give you a list of eight things in the poll um, that 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 people could identify as the as sort of source of the housing crisis. Too little home building finished pretty close to the bottom, yeah. uh, and at the bottom of the eight was overly restrictive uh, zoning, and and secondarily, uh, we asked folks. Hey, uh, and in, even in, the, in this context, we ask folks, um, look, California sets up these broad housing production goals. Uh, uh, cities and counties often don't meet those goals. Um, given that, do you think the state should have more control over those housing decisions than, than they do right now? And it was overwhelming. Seventy percent said keep local control as it is. And so. Yeah. Again, the broad takeaway is these sorts of housing ideas that both Newsom and Cox put forward and any politician puts forward has an extreme uphill climb, I think, to convince people that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and the, and the central pillar of both their housing platforms is not something a huge swath of the state actually believes is addressing the root of the problem. Exactly. Okay, so let's move on more specifically to each of their each of the candidates' plans. Right. So Newsom, um, he has, again, a super uh, aggressive housing production goal. He wants 500,000 new homes uh, to be built in California uh, for seven years in a row, so three and a half million by 2025. Uh, Again, for context, which is is vitally important on this issue, um, for the last decade or so, we've averaged in the state uh, around 100,000. And so less less than that, you're right. And so this would, you know, five times that. Never in the state, going back to when the building industry started keeping stats in the mid-1950s, has there been more than 322,000, I believe, in a year? And so this would be, you know, um, extreme order of magnitude uh, higher than that um, and sustained for seven years in a row, which is something that, uh, you know, um, we have not seen in the state and maybe ever. So that's his. (laughs) That's sort of his... Um, housing production goal. Uh, what else? So, um, are you going to lead with? I'll I'll save that clip, yeah. and then you can lead with that when you try to contact uh, Newsom's, Newsom's camp- communications camp- people <laughs> going going forward. Just play me laughing. Uh, so, so, 
Uh, sort of the last thing that's interesting to me um, about Newsom's plan on a high level is he's open to more state control over land use, uh, it seems, uh, which, again, seems to be going against public opinion. Um, but also a lot of experts say that you need to have more state intervention when um, housing production is as low as it is. And that's a good segue into uh, Republican John Cox's plan. John Cox, um, who made a lot of money in uh, real estate and specifically developing apartment buildings. How does he feel about local control? Well, so he has this sort of kind of a classic, uh, I think, Republican paradox. And again, to be clear, I think there's a lot of, of uh, similar sort of paradoxes on the left when you're talking about housing issues. But Cox, um, his primary plan for addressing um, uh, sort of uh, uh, housing affordability issues is to deal with regulation. So he's talked a lot about repealing the California Environmental Quality Act, which is the environmental regulation that um, many housing developments are subject to that can be super time consuming, repealing it and replacing it with something else. But when it comes to local control, uh, that is uh, sacrosanct to him. Uh, he says, no, we should keep cities and counties having the same amount of power over housing that they do now. Um, let's briefly talk about both of these candidates' attitudes towards rent control and right. rent control expansion, um, Prop 10, which we will be talking about at length later in this podcast. Um, but some recent news popped up with uh, Newsom and his attitudes towards rent control. So they're both, broadly, they're both against the initiative, say that they're going to vote against Prop 10. Yes. Uh, but Newsom has talked about, I think, similar in a way to uh, uh, in the primary former L.A. mayor, Antonio Villaraigosa, sort of said this in a, in a bit of a different way. But basically that he's open to, he likes rent control, open to changes to rent control. Uh, and sort of that's part of a larger discussion that he wants to have on on uh, on housing issues, which means it's sort of thrown into this kind of pot of things that could be that could be part of a larger housing package or, or, or larger piece of house, um, group of housing legislation uh, next year that could uh, address this issue in multiple ways. He recently told the Sacramento Bee, should Prop 10 fail, rent control will be a top priority of his um, in the first year of his administration. Let's very quickly talk about uh, the state legislature. It, and there is a specific fraction that people should keep in mind um, when it comes to the outcome of the we should, election. We should add a say the fraction of the week. Yeah, the fr I like the Fra fraction, fraction of the, the week. Fraction of the fortnight. Ooh, that, that's alliterative. alliterative. Yes. Nice. Ooh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so a lot of the coverage around what will happen in the state legislature will revolve around whether the Democrats get a two-thirds supermajority in both houses. Um, it looks like that they are Looks like that's going to happen in one house. Um, in, in the, the assembly, yeah. Yes. In mm -hmm. the other chamber, it's a little more uncertain. Right. Why is that two-thirds figure so important when it comes to housing policy? So it's important for two reasons. Um, with a two-thirds supermajority, you can, you can uh, put uh, pass taxes, um, and you can also um, put measures on the ballot. And so uh, those things, I think, are crucial. Um, you know, as we saw in 2017, mm -hmm. the big housing package that was passed uh, came with new revenue. That new revenue um, was 
both done on a on a two thirds supermajority mm-hmm. uh, with almost exclusively Democrats, but there were some Republicans who voted for it. Uh, but that that was that's um, there and important. So if you want new revenue as part of your housing stream or housing packages, which helps sort of piece together a coalition that might want to that might be around for other things, then having two thirds is super important. Secondarily, um, again, you can put things on the ballot. We're already going to have you. We've talked about split roll before. There's a split one measure that has qualified for the tw- for the 2020 ballot. It is certainly possible, I think probable, that there'll be negotiations surrounding a tax change package um, at, with the leverage that the split roll folks have. If Democrats want to push a tax a tax package, um, then having a two thirds uh, as an alternative, then having a two thirds supermajority is a way to, is a way to do that. Another thing to keep in mind. Getting a two-thirds supermajority for Democrats is helpful, but not determinative. Yes. Um, and we, we, it is still incredibly difficult to get a two-thirds vote, even if two-thirds or even more than two-thirds of the members of a chamber are in your party. So it's not as if getting that automatically means you're going to ram through whatever legislation you want to ram through. Let's move to the very first initiative on the ballot. Uh, Matt, tell us about Proposition 1. So Prop 1 um, is a... Re- is on your ballot because of the housing package that was passed last year. It is a $4 billion bond, uh, $3 billion of which is dedicated towards affordable housing broadly, a billion of which um, goes to home loans for veterans. Uh, The bulk of the affordable housing money will go to the construction and renovation of apartments reserved for low and moderate income Californians. There's also some money thrown in there for new home buyers. Um, If you're interested in what exactly that money would do. I did a piece on the California Housing Finance Agency. That's where that money's going. What else do what else do people really need to know about this? I think before we get into the yes and no sides yeah. of a prop one, I think the context for state funding on affordable housing is important because I think there's a notion out there that why are we voting on this? Isn't the state, we have this systemic housing crisis, isn't the state spending a ton on this anyway? And go ahead. And yeah, it's not really. It's not. It's not really. Particularly, um, you know, the last uh, housing bond wasn't passed more than a decade. Um, also, you yep. know, seven years since the end of the redevelopment program, which set aside uh, some property tax dollars for local governments to help build housing. And so the state money for, for housing is, is way below uh, where it used to be, um, even as recently as a decade ago, number one. And number two, even that money was pretty... Um, uh, low compared to what the need is yes. in, the, uh, in the state, and so um, you know, this is the the state does not spend a lot of money um, on um, on on low income housing. And the the previous bond money reserved for affordable housing has pretty much been exhausted. Right. One of my increasingly favorite stats is I think something that you included in one of your past stories, which is if you somehow waved a wand and made everybody who was extremely rent burden and housing cost burden not extremely right. rent burden right. that would cost between 15 billion and 30 billion a year right a year if you, yeah, annually so if you float a bond and that's how much it would cost to build housing to for the just those folks exactly which and is just the worst off in the state yes yeah. and so that's medical Right. Yeah, and that's the equivalent of, of the state's healthcare program. Yes. Uh, which again, it's a huge a, chunk of the budget. Huge chunk of the budget, same amount of money, and so uh, yeah, the state spending is hardly, hardly what that would be. Sure. Yeah. So we we actually kind of went through, I think, implicitly some of the arguments for this, which is the state is not spending a ton, right. and this bond money is badly needed. Yeah. What do you think is the most compelling argument against Prop One? Yeah. So I I think it's the 
I think I would say it's the cost of building um, affordable housing in, in California. Uh, you know, there was a recent study by the U.S. Government Accountability Office that said the cost of, for building an affordable unit um, in California, the median uh, was like something like 330000 I might not have it exactly right, um, but it was around that number, which the median in California was more than, you say, oh, well, California, high cost or whatever, right? But the median in California uh, statewide was higher than the median just for New York City, right? And so cost, construction costs for low-income housing in California are really, really out of scale with where they are in the rest of the country. And so you don't get a huge bang for your buck um, when you, you know, uh, 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 subsidize um, housing production here. Sure. Is there an alternative? Uh, I mean, you're asking me the best argument against it. I mean, so, so you know, that's what I think it is. I mean, I think you can make an argument that um, unless and until you or you should uh, look at ways to contain costs, um, the, the the money you're throwing money down a down a well that's not um, really going to get filled up in, as much as it could. I, I think in addition to that, and this is uh, has been pointed out by the California Republican Party and by John Cox, who right. who both oppose this measure. Um, it's a bond, yeah. right? Um, and if it's a bond, that means that $4 billion price tag, that's not really the full price tag to the state of California. Correct. You're going to be paying $170 million in interest on this every year. Our total. Yeah, that's uh, the total, the total oh, sorry, bond payment. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, yeah. including the principal. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, there there are other ways to finance. Conceivably, there are other ways to finance affordable housing. Like cash. Like just cash yeah. um, from the general fund, right. um, or raising taxes. Right. Um, those are typically heavy lifts. Right. Um, and this is just a one-time source of revenue, right? This isn't right. A, a recurring thing that affordable housing advocates who want this money um, can can rely on after it's exhausted. Yep. Um, okay. Anything else on Prop One? Should we nope. say some of the organizations that support Prop One that people should be aware of? Yeah, I mean it's a pretty broad cross section of sort of business and labor. Yes. I think they're pretty uh, united on this. The um, chamber is actually behind it. The, the, the uh, California Chamber of Commerce, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, State Building Trades, Structured Trades Union, who so obviously stand to benefit if that they'll get yes. some of this bond money to sure to build stuff. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yes, um, this was again this is part of the housing package, and so really all of the groups that were on board with that are on group with, on board with this too. Yeah, and pretty much every affordable housing developer in the state and affordable housing advocates broadly. Right. Uh, Chan Zuckerberg is one of the top donors there as you well, go. which yeah. is interesting. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Chan Zuckerberg has been doing uh, they, they, throwing doing stuff in housing. Money. Yeah, yeah, they are. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, okay, let's move on to Prop 2. And, Liam, why don't you take the lead? Uh, tell me what I need to know about Prop 2. Yeah, so um, this may be not relevant to your vote um, but at first, but this was a bond that was not supposed to be here. Um, basically, what happened in the history of this, this is, uh, this is money. So it, uh, state early 2000s passed a supplemental income tax on people making a mil- over a million dollars a year. The money is supposed to go towards um, health care for severely mentally ill individuals. Uh, and so 2016, um, housing crisis uh, really starting to peak. Um, a number of state legislators have state, state legislators have the idea of taking that money, some of that money, and bonding it out uh, and using the money to help build a supportive housing for homeless residents, uh, homeless residents who are severely mentally ill. So they passed the measure in 2016. The governor signed it, and then it got sued. 
And so we're sort of in a long court case about whether the uh, state could do that without asking for a public vote. Um, generally speaking, the state can issue debt without a public vote. There are exceptions, of course, but generally you can't. And so earlier this year, the governor and the legislature said, ah, ah, nuts to the courts. To hell with it. Yeah. We'll just put it on the ballot and have the public say yes. And so that's what Prop 2 is. So it's a $2 billion bond, uh, as I mentioned, for money that would go towards um, building new housing uh, for the severely mentally ill who are homeless. And so why do um, some advocates for the mentally ill homeless oppose this measure? Because it's treatment money. And so other that other, you know, you're taking money that would otherwise go towards treatments, uh, mental health treatment and putting it into housing construction, A. And B, as you were saying before, you know, this money comes in every year. You could pay cash or subsidize uh, these developments with cash that comes in. You don't have to bond and therefore incur interest costs, which they again, they argue further takes away money that would otherwise go to treatment. And what is the counter argument to that on the yes side? Uh, you know, it goes into the line of um, basically the sort of housing first uh, argument where um, the best way to help folks who are on the street is to put them in housing. And then you, from there, from that level of stability, you can address uh, other issues or challenges that they might have. We'll see how this does. Um, I think, if, however, if there were not confidence that voters would say yes, then they probably would have taken would not have taken the risk to put it on the ballot. Yeah, and I think a lot of that confidence stems from this is the only initiative that's directly aimed at helping homelessness, right? Um, which has been identified by Newsom and others as the number one issue confronting the state. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, let's move to Prop Five. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to? Yeah. Sure. Jump, okay. Jump in on it. So Prop 5, again, I recommend you take a listen to a previous podcast we did um, with proponents and opponents of Prop 5. Prop 5 is a expansion of Prop 13 tax break benefits to Californians age 55 and older when they move. So uh, under current law, if you are 55 and older, your current property tax base, which is likely pretty low if, if you've been living in your home for a while. Right. You can if you buy a new place outside of your county and outside of a handful of other counties that participate in kind of a special program, um, you're going to be paying a lot more in property taxes. Older Californians feel that they are kind of trapped because of their their property tax break. The reason they don't downsize or the reason they don't move maybe closer to their kids or to another part of the state is because they're going to have to pay a lot more in property taxes. Uh, Prop 5 seeks to redress this. Um, it's put on the ballot by the California Association of Realtors. Um, it would basically allow you to uh, blend your old property tax rate with your new property tax rate. It's a pretty good deal for those age 55 and older if they move to a new house. So I think I think the Realtors Association has identified what is indeed a real, real problem with uh, California's housing market as it exists. So older people in houses they don't really need anymore because they're too big, right? Their their kids have moved on, they're empty nesters. Yet they still got, you know, three, four, or five bedrooms, right? Yeah. Um, and they could move to a smaller place and free up houses for younger families to move in there. Uh, but the tax breaks now are so good that that um that they makes it hard for them to do. That they don't. That they yeah. don't. But um this really brings up severe issues of uh, of equity 
for one. Uh, you know, I did a story I encourage you to read where I quoted a couple of economists that actually had taken hard looks um, at this sort of lock-in effect of Prop 13. And when I called them, I was expecting, since they had identified this sort of phenomena, this lock-in is real and exists, I'd expect them to be a bit kinder to Prop 5. But they were really, really harsh. Um, an economist at Penn, uh, Fernando uh, Ferraria, uh, told me that Prop 5 was quote, completely nonsensical. Uh, He said, right now you're giving a gigantic tax break to older homeowners who live in the best houses in the richest part of the state. This new proposition, unfortunately, will just perpetuate this inequality. Let's go ahead and talk about the argument against Prop 5, which is primarily the, the fiscal impact that it would have on local governments and schools. So the Legislative Analyst Office um, put out in LAO terms, a relatively scathing analysis of Prop 5 that it would cost uh, two bill, eventually cost $2 billion a year, a billion for local governments, and a billion for schools should it actually go into effect. Right. The other not-so-great uh, finding from the LAO analysis for proponents of Prop 5 was that the main beneficiaries of this would have moved anyway. That's right. That it would not have induced a bunch of new turnover on the market, but that instead baby boomers who are going to move regardless are just going to get a really sweet property tax break. And my colleague uh, at the Times, Andrew Corey, uh, if you don't just want to take the LAO's LAO's word for it, uh, spoke to a bunch of real estate experts who found the same thing, largely agreed that, yeah, there might be a small spike in in sales, but nothing nothing that substantial as a result of this. So anything else on Prop 5 that you wanted to add? I think think we got it covered. I think we're good. Let's go to the the main event. Yeah, let's do it. Prop 10, the initiative that could potentially expand rent control in California. Let us let us begin. Yeah. So uh, one of the most expensive campaigns in California history. Um, we have it topping our latest tally, topping 100 million uh, raised. Um, yeah. Uh, the opponents uh, predominantly sort of uh, well, the, the, the lion's share of the financing is coming from um, sort of large landlords in the state. I had a story that that, that ran this week uh, that addresses this as an effort not to just stop the expansion of rent control in California, but also potentially over the rest of the country. Given the history where rent control sort of goes in waves uh, in the U.S. Sure. Um, And you uh, saw this get national attention actually earlier this week. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont endorsed uh, Proposition 10. Yeah. So uh, uh, so, uh, opponents are out raising supporters uh, uh, three to one. Yeah. Um, And uh, still, though, uh, you know, 23 million uh, roughly raised by the uh, AIDS Healthcare Foundation, which is the primary supporter. uh, They're the largest single donor to the campaign. And so that's not a small sum, even though the opponents, you know, your large landlords, um, uh, Essex Property Trust, which is a huge footprint um, nationally and and in California. uh, When you combine some money with their with their founder, they're over uh, they're at around nine million. Again, um, what Prop 10 does is repeals the 1995 law, the Costa-Hawkins Rental Housing Act, which um, limits cities' ability to provide uh, rent control, implement rent control in their communities in three key key ways. Uh, no rent control on single-family homes. Second, uh, no rent control on buildings built after 1995 or in some cities that had older policies, uh, like L.A., San Francisco, not there either. Also, Costa-Hawkins give la- gives landlords the right to... Um, uh, uh, increase the rents to whatever they want once a rent control tenant were to leave. And so they're the three principles of, of uh, Costa-Hawkins. If Prop 10 passes, that all goes away, and cities can implement the rent control policies they, they choose. Yes, and uh, importantly, uh, if Prop 10 passes, 
for the most part, you don't immediately get rent control. Your locality, your local government will have to act and affirmatively set up a rent control regime. There's some possible exceptions to that um, with dead letter law in a few localities that already have rent control. Um, So let's Let's break this into two parts. First, let's go through the most compelling arguments for and against the measure. Um, And then secondly, let's talk about the possible political ramifications of it losing uh, next week. Well, we're talking, we mentioned it losing because polling, as I don't think we've mentioned, has shown that this is trailing severely. I think the the most egregious poll uh, was uh, Public Policy Institute uh, last week, yeah, relatively recently. in the 20s. In the 20s, which is just an awful, awful, awful number. <laughs> yes. And, and low. And, yeah. and, uh, and an IGS poll, so a, a Berkeley poll, very credible poll came out today that um, showed it trailing by double digits as well. Yes. Yeah. So multiple polls show it not faring very well. Right. Right. Um, so let's let's start with the arguments. Yeah. Uh, so we, I forget how we did this. Who was taking the yes side? Who was taking the no I, side? I was taking the reasons to vote for Prop 10. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, three of them. Uh, three of the best reasons in my, in my uh, perspective to say yes on Prop 10. And actually, yeah. disclaimer here. Yeah. We are not endorsing no, 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 in no, any no, way no, 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 no. either of these sides. Yes. So this this is just us going through the arguments. We're laying out the best best possible arguments on both sides. Yes. Please. And yeah. I'll challenge some of those arguments. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we're going to have a nice, a nice little banter. mock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll take the, the, the yes points. Yes. So uh, starting, uh, you have nine and a half million Californians. No, you don't. <laughs> you got to let me finish. God, that's the first rule. I have more money than you, so <laughs> that means I'm going to increase my volume and decrease yours. So uh, I'll start again. Uh, 9.5 million Californians who are part of families right now paying more than half their income on rent. Lies. Fake news. <laughs> so the reality uh, is that nothing can be done quickly and cheaply to give them some relief like you can with rent control. Point one. I mean, you could say, oh, build a lot more housing or subsidize a lot more housing. Well, that, all that stuff takes time. And in the meantime, you have people who are really struggling. Sure. Uh, would you like me to push back or do you want me to wait until you're done with uh, I'll Yeah, let's go, I'll go through all three and then we'll have, we'll have a sure. discussion. So, okay. Okay, number two. Um, so an argument, um, there's generally an argument that landlords should be able to charge what they want uh, because they've put money in um, to their property, so they're entitled to return on that investment. And But the problem over the last decade in particular, in California, you've had a huge run-up in property values that has had little to do with actual landlord investment in property and a whole lot to do with the state's overall housing shortages. Uh, plus, uh, long-time property owners are taxed at really low rates because of Prop 13. So rate control as a policy would allow tenants to share in some of these property value gains that landlords now enjoy exclusively alongside their low taxes while they've not put a lot in to get those property values to increase as much as they have. Point two. The third, um, the initiative is really the only way to do it. You have the legislature not being super friendly to tenants for decades and has sort of proved incapable of addressing this issue. Rent control ultimately go- – and rent control ul- indeed ultimately goes extinct without some form uh, reform to this 1995 law because it has um, 
you know, uh, put limits on the construction date uh, on which you can have um, properties where rent control exists. So the longer time goes away, and this is more immediate an issue in San Francisco and L.A., which has, issue, which has rent control on properties dating back to the late 70s, longer you go, the less rent control properties you are you have, the less rent control exists, and you're just eroding that, that base. So again, um, by pressing, passing Prop 10, you would simply be giving cities options to address all of these things. I'll just lay out some of the counter, yeah. the, the no on 10 arguments. Yeah. So, right. yes. So, in the um, economics literature, it is fairly universal, left of center, right of center economists uh, agree that rent control is a bad thing. Why is it a bad thing? Uh, because it is a classic example of a price ceiling. And what price ceilings do is they screw up a market, um, primarily by limiting the Diluting the incentive to build new housing, so not enough supply, which most housing experts would uh, agree we desperately need, and um, diluting the incentive for uh, apartment owners um, to take care of their apartments, to maintain their apartments. Why do any of that if you're not going to reap uh, a decent profit? Or, Plus, or, or even sell, right? Yes, yes. exactly. Mm-hmm. Plus, taking units off the market by simply converting to condos or selling them wholesale. Rent control is not means-tested. There are people currently benefiting from rent control in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles that make six figures. Is that fair? Does this ballot initiative do anything to address that? Are you asking me? I'm just throwing <laughs> it out there. <laughs> yes, this is a, a, a key issue when it comes to rent control. Yes. I, I, I agree. Another argument, um, Liam, there's a lot of people involved in housing that aren't fans of local control. Has local control worked broadly in housing in the state of California? If you're an expert, uh, you would say no. Why should we devolve powers to localities for this when it hasn't worked in any other aspect of housing law? It's a pretty good question. So there are there are a litany of other arguments, both for and against. Um, what, what I think, unfortunately, has been lost here is... The fact that this is not an either or, that you, that there are rent con- there are different ways to tweak rent control regimes that perhaps could limit some of the negative effects of rent control on housing supply, and that that argument has been completely lost. Yeah, and so go ahead. I, I I agree with you, but I I do think that's a function of how the initiative is 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 written, right? Yeah, you're not talking about a particular solution. You're talking about providing an infinite universe of solutions, which yes. is very easy for po- for folks, and rightfully so in almost all respects, for folks who are against a lot of these things to say, well, wait a second, this could mean rent control on single-family homes, or this could mean rent control on something that we think is crazy, right? Or, yes. And, and without well, that limiting event, then they're the arguments that you have to engage in with, with the measure is written, no? Yes. I. So, one, if you structured the actual initiative in a different way that wasn't just straight up repeal of Costa Hawkins. That dilutes the emphasis on local control, yes. right? Yes. So if if part of the campaign is give cities the right to do what they want to do, they're more responsive to their constituents than the state is, less controlled by special interests. If you put in specific prescriptions into the initiative, that is limiting what localities can do. Yes. So there, there is a tension there. I, you know, I raised this on, God, a podcast. I don't know how long we've been talking about rent control for a while now. Yeah. But you know, you're exactly right. They could have included an exemption for new construction. That to me seems like the most obvious one, right? Because 
mo- the vast majority of people on the yes on 10 side would agree with an exemption for new construction. Right. That takes out one of the main lines of argument for for the no side. That that was not in there, right? When it gets into the other stuff like single family homes right. Right. and right. vacancy control, right. I think there's less kind of unanimity on the yes on 10 side over those issues, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that say, yeah, we do want to impose rent control on Single-family homes. Well, and, Look how many people are renting single-family homes now. It's gone a, up dramatically. And a high-level LA County official said that yes. uh, in an interview rel- in, you know, in the last couple of weeks. And so this is not a pure hypothetical or a scare tactic. No. Right? I mean, it's a real thing that, that real people are talking about doing. Let's, let's kick it ahead, and let's assume for the moment that Prop 10 does lose on Tuesday. What does that mean for the future of rent control in California? So I think I – think, um, I think it's a hard question to to, to answer um, because we would not know exactly how much it might lose by, and and I actually I think the margin is important, right? If you have yes. if you have it losing say fifty five, you know forty five, or even sixty forty, that's something very different than seventy thirty, right? Yes. Um, and I think that margin is really important to sort of show how much sway that advocates might have um, moving forward. Uh, within the larger conversation that all of us expect to have about housing issues in the state coming forward in the legislature next year. So that mar- number one, I think you have to look to the margin, right? Even if it loses, the margin is still is still um, very important. I, I agree with yeah. that. I think if the margins... So what if the margins end up being close to what the polls say? Well... Like so, let it. Let, what if it gets like, in the 30s? In the 30s, I think that's really poor. I think it's a really poor showing. I mean, and, yet, and what does that mean? Well, I think that means there's less leverage. I think that means that apartment owners and others can say, "Well, look, like you know, again, I understand that they were the yes side was out or the yes side was outspent three to one. Yeah, but 25 million is not a small chunk of change, and there was a big, robust effort to do something here uh, at a time of uh, unprecedented housing affordability, uh, pressuring renters in the state, and this is all you got." Yeah. You know, and so that I mean, that's a real argument that they while they're going to have the upper hand no matter what in this world that we're talking about, really have um, a lot of, a lot more leverage um, to to do what they want here and not give much of anything at the table if it even comes to that. Yeah. I mean, that that's the question that keeps coming back to me is what is the Apartment Association going to get from anybody at the state level that's going to negotiate this. Right. Because my first question is, if I'm the apartment association, all right, we just killed this thing, maybe convincingly. Right. You know, we rather not spend all this money on 2020, but we will if we have to. Right. What are are you going to give me for me to compromise on Costa-Hawkins reform in any way? Because right now it's working really, really well for me. Sure. I don't know. I don't know either. I I don't know. I mean (laughs) – I mean, it has to be something around more building, right? Um, but uh, but if you're even, a, if you're, you're the a landlord, landlord what do you know. care? Right, 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 right. I mean, I mean, I think you care, but but I think I think it's not. I think it's you no. care. You care. Well, you care less than um, something the re- that would, would the realtors your, and the developers right. and other elements of this coalition. Yeah, but yeah, but no, right, right. But to your point, you care less than uh, something that would threaten you. Yeah, right. So. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I will say, um, I don't think this is going away. Um, and, and I think, and I think, uh, rent control in general, and I mean that because you have localities that are um moving forward. I mean, there's two local measures I'm aware of, 
um, on on the ballot. Or one in Santa Cruz, uh, one in, one in National City, which mm-hmm. is a city just south of San Diego that has their own local rank control yeah. measures on the ballot. Uh, Sacramento, a huge city in in the scheme of things, has qualified a rank control measure for twenty twenty. Yes, that has the mayor's support. That, so yeah, I mean you 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 have um, discussions that are continuing uh, and are, I think are going to continue in this climate. It's just so I mean I, I, it's not going to go away. But again, I would I keep coming back to the margin as far as the kind of leverage that that everyone's going to have at the table here. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the S on Ten campaign's recent emphasis on the fact that this has changed the discussion? This has look. We got all these local elected officials, prominent ones: Garcetti, right. the, the mayor of Los Angeles, right. the mayor of Oakland, Libby right. Schaaf. Right. Do you think there's merit to that argument? Yeah, I mean, we're taught we, you know, uh, we talked about record control a million times more than any other topic this year because yeah. they've made it something that we talk about. They've yeah, made it a prominent political debate in California that is reverb- certainly reverberating, I think, across the country, right? Um, and so this is the thing we're talking about, and a lot of attention is shined on it because that's what they're doing. They've they put that put it up, but at the end of the day, I mean, but it you know it costs twenty five million dollars to do that, right? Um, yeah, and and so. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, I don't know what the cost benefit is. Um, you know, if you do see this as a, something that you're going to kick another, uh, you know, $25 million in every every two to four years to try again or to try to, to do well, something to build a, build a coalition and get where you want on this, maybe. But that's a, that's a multi-year, long-term, substantial investment. Maybe they argue you have to make. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, we're talk, certainly talking about it. It is in a prominent part of the conversation how long that will that how long that will last. I think also will depend on the changes that you're going to see in the housing market too, right? And yes. so, so yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's tough to predict the future on that. Yeah. Well, just extending the cost benefit beyond what um, Michael Weinstein and the AIDS Healthcare Foundation have spent uh, behind it. I mean, the the true cost will be if this thing goes down and goes down bad. Yeah. Because because of what we were just discussing with regards to leverage. Sure. So that that's the real cost. Yeah. If if the ultimate goal is expanding rent control, and you've just uh, handed the apartment, yeah, and you just handed the landlords more leverage than they already had, you know, th- then comes the question: Was this a mistake? Yeah. So uh, Liam and I have discussed Prop Ten in excruciating detail. Let's continue the conversation in excruciating detail with our guests. We're here with Damian Goodman, a spokesperson for the Yes on Prop 10 campaign. Damian, thank you so much for being here. So good to be with you both. So uh, give us the broadest possible argument uh, you can make for why people should vote on Prop 10. Well, I can do that in a few words. The rent's too damn high. Um, we are seeing a record levels of homelessness. Um, a housing affordability crisis that is a moral crisis, that is a education crisis, as we're seeing students who are displaced, performing worse on Saturday tests and having higher dropout rates. A seniors crisis, as in cities like Los Angeles, where we're seeing growth in the homelessness population being fueled by seniors. 22% of seniors uh, account for, uh, excuse me, there's been a 22% increase in senior homelessness in L.A. County. And it's largely a product of a, a broken housing market, one in which um, increasingly corporate landlords and Wall Street investors have sought to gouge renters. So we firmly believe that in this crisis that we should have all tools in the toolkit. 
Um, we should not have restrictions that were imposed by a landlord lobby and the real estate interest over 23 years ago and have proven to have failed to continue. We need to unshackle the ability of our local governments to have good, fair conversations, um, extensive conversations with all parties about how to regulate rents if they choose. Um, so, Damien, you're obviously familiar with the polling on Prop 10. Um, a poll actually came out today um, showing uh, that it was trailing by double digits, which is, again, in line with several other, po- several other polls conducted on it. Why do you think Prop 10 is trailing significantly? Well, I think, you know, the only poll that we care about is the poll on Election Day. And the opposition has done a great job. Is that true? You don't care about any of these other polls? I, I don't. I mean, if I if I put my faith in polls, Hillary Clinton would be president of the United States. <laughs> um, it, it's just the, the sad reality that, uh, you know, it's been wrong on too many occasions for me to put faith in that we're going to do what we do, which is building the largest effort uh, for renter power combined with uh, homeowners and good mom-and-pop landlords who are trying to make this issue more widely understood and make sure people get to the polls and vote the right way. But, I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. We've got over $70 million that's been spent by um, the opposition, primarily coming from major Wall Street investment firms like uh, Blackstone, the largest private equity firm in the world. Jeff Palmer, which you guys know, you know, is probably singularly responsible for the greatest loss of affordable housing in the state of California over the last eight years. These are the people who uh, are, are funding ads intended to confuse voters. Everyone knows that the rent's too damn high. Um, and we're seeing in, in some of the very same polls that people support rent control. Um, and so what the opposition has done with the money they're using, uh, gouging renters, is sought to confuse people, imply that renters are opposed to this, even though every tenant team from San Diego all the way up to the Oregon border supports it, that it's bad for affordable housing, even the Housing California, the nonprofit uh, housing coalitions in Northern California and Southern California uh, support it. They can only win by using their money to confuse voters. And there's a lot of confusion out there. You reference sort of uh, this confusion surrounding um, what you, you argue that the opponents of this are trying to do. But that leads to a question that I think there's been a, a long critique of the ballot measure as written, is that were there not ways to write a measure to promote rent control or get at what you're trying to do that would be less about what might happen in the future, which is what this measure is, right? Individual communities um, passing their own rent control policies in the future and more prescriptive, something that would perhaps be less open to um, efforts to attack it because of its uncertain outcomes. Well, I, I, the reality is that regardless of whether we built, whether we wrote something that was completely understandable, the opposition would imply that there were "quote unquote" unintended consequences. I mean, I, I love when I when I'm up against Mike Gatto, who was a former member of the Assembly and is strongly opposed to rent control in his comments, and he talked about 539 rent control boards, which is a la- which is laughable. I mean, that's every city and county in the state of California adopting rent control. In no, Alpine County, population 1,500, <laughs> is not going to adopt rent control. The legislature left us no choice. I mean, AB 1506, which, again, was a clean bill that simply said repeal this, couldn't even get out of its, its committee, a committee controlled by Democrats. And if it got into the floor, and that's our argument in many respects, one of the reasons they killed it in committee as opposed to going to the floor, 
you would have seen dozens of Democratic legislators who are just so happen to also get a lot of money from the California Apartment Association, the California Association of Realtors, vote no or abstain. A clean bill that simply says L.A. should have a conversation, San Francisco should be allowed to have a conversation. So when we were helping uh, address that question, you know, do you propose statewide rent control or do you simply say that the decision should be returned to local communities, um, we felt it might have been easier, an easier sell um, and more democratic to, to not uh, attempt to, pers- to, to, to impose a prescription for the entire state. But I will say this, if we're not successful on Tuesday, given the way the polls are, are going, legitimate conversations are going to take place throughout this state. And I will be one of the leaders in that, and I think uh, it's fair to say the Health Healthcare Foundation will as well, in talking about whether statewide rent control in the 2020 ballot is appropriate if this mm. is not successful. Mm. Interesting. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's Annie Upping, sounds like. Yeah. Up in the Annie. Hey. You know, I mean, when you see polls that suggest that 60 percent of, of the California uh, supports rent control, but 60 percent of them are, are potentially opposed to Proposition 10, well, maybe you just need to make a plan for people. Yeah. So, so on that note, actually, something that I've seen kind of noticeably absent from much of the advertising on the Yes on 10 campaign is the phrase rent control. It seems to me that if you were trying to get rid of some of the confusion around what Prop 10 is and what it does that maybe emphasizing rent control in the advertising might make sense. Why, why aren't I seeing more ads explicitly about rent control from you guys? Well, I think it's easier to, to talk about limiting rent increases. Um, uh, if you, and um, I encourage you guys to do it, I mean, even in a city like Sacramento that is having a, a thorough public conversation about it, um, if you knock on 10 renters' doors and you say rent control, you'll get more questions than you will um, get support. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's in, it, in the abstract, again, do you think rent control or, you know, allowing, you know, greater density is more important towards solving our housing crisis? In the abstract, that's one thing. But when you're actually talking to renters, when you're actually talking to homeowners, you, many of whom have no concept of rent control, it gets a little complicated. So um, I hate to, to stick on... Paul's, but but I do have one more question that we we, we, we need to ask uh, about this. Um, so we our other guest for this uh, podcast is uh, Steve Maviglio of the No on Ten side, and he told us in an interview that um, that the internal polling that the AIDS Health Healthcare Foundation did on this initiative never really topped forty uh, percent, and uh, or much higher than forty percent, low forties, and wanted to see if you had any any response to that. Well, did Steve uh, mention that from his castle in Italy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he could possibly know. Uh, and we're not in the business of making anything internal public. But uh, I think Mr. Mavilio needs to focus more on the the tens of thousands of renters and Democrats throughout the state of California who are going to be questioning why he decided that he would rather be in the bed with Michael Haiti, um, Jeff Palmer, California's largest uh, Trump donor, and others instead of the Democratic Party. So we've asked a lot of political questions. I, I also want to ask a, a policy question to you. Um, so this is this is well cited at this point, but you know, the lion's share, if not more, of economists, uh, including liberal runs, um, say rent control is not good for overall housing affordability in the long run, and there's a lot of unintended consequences that are hard to fix or address. So how do you respond to that to that argument? Well, I think we've gotten a lot of great, um, and this is, again, the product of being engaged in what is a national referendum on 
uh, the changing housing market. I think he's changed a lot of minds. In fact, uh, there's a professor at a play school, uh, the planning school in USC, an economist who's coming out with something today. Uh, you know, Manuel Pastor, along with uh, Stephen Barton, these are all professors at reputable institutions, and not just reputable institutions, the best institutions in the state, um, who are trying to change that dialogue. I think what we have seen so far is that uh, those who refuse to get beyond the, the old supply and demand market and don't recognize that housing is not like peaches, where if you don't have any peaches, then you just go buy some pears. There's actually a, a critical necessity for life and should be considered more of a of a public utility, and that with, you know, the impeding, or I should say encroaching uh, uh, Wall Street investors and corporate landlords, the entire market has been kind of turned upside down. It's a new environment. Um, and there has never been uh, a study, a study that suggested that, you know, rent control impedes construction. So I'm, I'm trying to understand why the why, why folk might have issues with seniors that live in, in Los Angeles that are in units that were built in 1980 um, not being rent-controlled. Um, there's great data, I mean, like great data out of the cities that did adopt a, a, a neutered form of rent control or were forced into a neutered form of rent control after Costa Hawkins was passed to show the effects of it. Um, to show, you know, literally in Santa Monica, and you should look at that article when the, um, you should bring that up while we're on here, where um, the proponents of Costa Hawkins said that by imposing this restriction on the ability of local governments um, uh, to enact rent control, that they said, the proponents, that this would lead to more building of housing. To the exact opposite, with less housing. And yet those who opposed it, like Senator Tom Hayden, who represented Santa Monica at the time, said we're, it's not going to be overnight, but gradually we're going to see the, you know, the funky Santa Monica that you know, has a great reputation turn into an unaffordable enclave. One was right, one was wrong. Um, we have tried uh, Costa Hawkins for 23 years and seen less construction and increased rental prices. It's got to go. Gavin Newsom made some remarks about um, supporting some type of Costa-Hawkins reform um, should Prop 10 uh, fail. What what would you expect him to do around rent control? Well, if it's anything as to what he did for homelessness in San Francisco, I'm a bit, I'm a bit scared. Um, the reality is that the governor, like so many other politicians in the Democratic Party, has been bought and paid for by... Um, the the landlords and the realtor lobby and the developers lobby. And sorry to, um, to be clear, you're you're talking about Newsom, candidate for governor. Uh, he's the next governor of California. You can call him candidate all you want. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but he has a, a, a long history of taking money from the very perpetrators of this crisis. So, I mean, it's it's a real issue. Uh, I I don't um, I don't trust that he is going to put his back behind it. Um, I don't think he's going to put his back and his leadership behind getting a real uh, bill passed if this is not successful. So we're, we're, not, we're not seeing our legislature, even if he is, and I think that's the other piece, even if, he, even if he is going to put his back behind it, we can count to 41 in one chamber and 21 in the other, and it's just not there. Seems like there's not a lot of trust there. Why would you? I mean, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, he, he has a record. He has a record. 
when he was uh, the mayor of San Francisco. The legislature has a record of failing to do anything for 23 years. I mean, that's the, that's the piece that's got to stick with you. Uh, all right. Give us the world uh, that you guys, where you guys win on uh, next Tuesday. We're going to be in cities throughout. Uh, we're going to be supporting cities throughout the state in, uh, as they engage in these conversations. And we're going to see mom-and-pop landlords come to tables with renters talking about what makes sense in their city. Um, I think part of the reason why the other side is so heavily invested in opposing this, and we're seeing international investment, investment from companies that have a small portfolio of rental properties in, in California, because they know that, that this is a growing movement. They have gone too far. Um, they have gouged too many renters. They've sent eviction notice to too many widows. They've made homeless too many elders. And so after we win uh, on, on the 6th, on the 7th, we begin that process of identifying those cities and those local elected officials and those stakeholders who want to come to a table to talk about how we can expand rent control, how we can make rent control to be effective in these, in these markets. Is there anything you would have done different? In the campaign? Yeah. I got an entire vacation to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Always deflect with humor. That's good. That's good. (laughs) Where's the vacation? Where are you going? Uh, I'm trying to get to Africa, uh, but I don't know if that's possible. All right. Uh, Well, Damon, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Damon. We're here with Steve Maviglio, who is the spokesperson for the campaign against uh, Proposition 10. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Happy Halloween. Oh, I, should, or I shouldn't have said that because it's not Halloween. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, you okay. you've ruined the illusion that, that this is all live. But. I am not in costume. Are you dressing up as anything? Mm, uh, Bernie Sanders, but uh, you know, I've had that costume for two years now, so maybe it's time to retire. <laughs> Uh, so let's start again really broadly here. Uh, give us the, the main argument that people should not vote for Prop 10. Well, we think that Prop 10 will make California's housing crisis even worse. It's bad for renters in that they'll obviously have less choices, some places to rent. And because many units will come off the market, uh, we think it's bad for homeowners because it'll diminish their property values. And we think it's bad for the state as a whole because we think it'll reduce the construction of new affordable housing. Has anything surprised you in terms of how this campaign has played out? Yeah, as a strategy of the other side. I mean, they are very well funded. I mean, 23, 4, whatever it is, million dollars is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, many campaigns have faced uh, greater spending against them than they have and have been successful. I can think of uh, the plastic bag campaign I worked on a couple of years ago. I can think of the cigarette tax where big tobacco spent way more money than the advocates. Um, but I think this was a campaign that was searching for a message, was unable to translate uh, public support for rent control into a winnable campaign because they had a flawed initiative the way they wrote it and a flawed financer in the way he ran the campaign. How, how would you... Uh, have written the initiative. Oh, I'm giving away the secret sauce here. <laughs> Please. Well, you know, the problem uh, with an initiative campaign is you can always pull coals th- through things unless they're written very well. This was not written well. It was written as a broad, carte blanche 
approached a thing where we could say this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, and they'd be forced to be on defense and say, well, listen, it'll never happen. We won't do this. And because of that, it was the whole message of selling their concept was difficult. So even though they pitched it as something really simple, state law blocks most rent control, this simply takes state law away. Um, and then people can decide. Um, that seems like a simple message. Right, because they were telling renters, this will control your rent, but they were telling everybody else, well, no, it just allows communities to do something. And so it was a very mixed message to say, okay, well, you're going to do this or aren't you? And they had no explanation because they could or they couldn't. Do you, do you think you could craft a more specific initiative while still preserving the local control argument, though? Yeah, I mean, our polling showed that single-family fam- uh, homeowners hated this because it would diminish the value of their home. Um, could you exempt them? Yeah, they could have. Um, we found affordable housing developers hated this thing because it didn't exempt affordable housing. Could they have written that in? Sure, they could have. They didn't. So they could have eliminated two of the biggest opposing arguments to this just by crafting it narrowly uh, to apply to the people that they seem to be going after, which are corporate landlords, which represent a tiny fraction of the owners of rental housing in this state. But that's where their message is focused at, this anti-Wall Street, uh, you know, rent is too damn high chant uh, on a blue bus that's running around the state, so, which doesn't really translate. So let's, that's a nice segue to what I want to talk about, which, yes, okay, I can see that 23 million, 24 million is not a small chunk of change, um, but your side is three to one, um, outraised it. I'll mo- the uh, significant portion of that money comes from these corporate landlords, which you say is a, you know, I roughly maybe 10% of the market, at least, um, uh, according to the numbers that I got. Yep. And so, um, you know, and and they were arguing, and their first priority, um, as has been argued, but is probably the reality, is to their investors, is it not? Um, and so they work and have spent very much to do something that, that would benefit uh, them and their investors, and that's their top, top, uh, top priority. So how do you argue against that? The, the, the yes side saying, look, these folks are not out for, for us. They're out for another another market. Well, I think, you know, the, the people you have identified there are landlords. They're property owners. They do not want to see the value of their property diminished, just like I don't when I rent out my single family house somewhere because this will be the effect. They have shareholders to respond to. But, you know, let's remember that I think it's close to 70 percent of the rental properties in the state are owned by small investors. Uh, somebody that rents so out. That, a, that that would include apartments, right? Yeah. Not, apartments, yeah. single family but homes. Um, you know, the, I, the single family home rental market, though, that's where companies like Blackstone, some of these private equity and Wall Street groups, that's they have a bigger influence there. Yeah, I mean, but still, I mean, their numbers are, are tiny. I mean, I think Blackstone is 14,000 units. I mean, Invitation is 12,000. Invitation, which is okay, a, so a that's max like, of 12,000. You know, that yeah. is just a tiny sliver of the pie of rental housing. It's more like people like me. I own a single-family house. I have great tenants. They like me. I like them. I charge below market rates because it's good for us, good for them. Um, that's you know, that's why I don't think people are looking at this greedy landlord thing with with uh, any kind of saying, oh, yeah, because that's not the typical case. I mean, we I've seen these anecdotes story after story about, you know, so-and-so's rent was increased, you know, 57 percent in one year. OK, but that's not what's happening around the state. I think that your newspaper, Liam, had a story about rents in L.A. are just going up three or four percent on average this year. So, you know, these horror stories, they're nice anecdotes, but it's never a good thing to make public policy by anecdote. So do you think um, there is too much influence from uh, large um, corporate landlords on housing policy in the state in general? You know, I think that's a relative recent phenomenon. When Costa Hawkins was passed, 
many, many, many years ago, they almost didn't exist in the state. A lot of that oh. came after the recession when they bought a lot of housing. Um, so I think their influence in this election is, is being seen by their contributions. But I don't think they have the kind of clout in the capital that, uh, you know, the smaller mom and pops that consist of most of the apartment organizations do. Uh, to me, the most compelling argument for Prop 10 is, okay, if we don't do expanded rent control, what can we do in the immediate term to help renters? So I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that. I mean, there's a lot of things on the table. I mean, Senator Harris obviously has proposed a tax credit. Um, we've been somewhat supportive of means testing uh, because we've seen too many instances where people that are making six figures are living in apartments for $600 a month. Um, I mean, I, I know when I was looking for an apartment in New York City where they have rent control, I mean, it's almost impossible because nobody leaves these apartments and they figured out how to give them to their friends, relatives, uncles, aunts. Um, so I think means testing is something that could be floated. I know that after this campaign is over and hopefully will be successful, um, we've committed to sitting down with Gavin Newsom, who also opposes Prop 10, to, to figure out some solutions. So I, I think that's going to be a priority one for him and, and for us, because obviously we don't want to see this come back again. So you, you folks would support a means-tested rent control? I think there's been thoughts about that. It has to be crafted the right way. But if you're going to do it, that's probably the way to do it. Hmm. What, what incentive do you guys have to actually negotiate uh, Casa Hawkins reform if you guys win? Yeah, and especially if the polls suggest a you know, sizable win. And a lot of people would say, well, the voters have spoken. Why are we even talking about this yeah. anymore? But listen, I mean, we have a governor who's made this, who's an incoming governor, hopefully, Gavin Newsom, who is going to make this a top priority, and we're going to have to work with him. We don't want to see this come back. Um, the guy who's behind this said he's like, what is it, the quote, gum on his shoe, that he's going to be back with this. Um, then, you know, it's political malpractice to have put this thing on the ballot in the first place when it only started polling in 40 percentage, uh, you know, numbers. Is that your numbers, internal numbers? That yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm sure he had the same thing. In fact, we know he had the same thing because he was telling people he was trying to raise money from that it only started 40 something percent. And in my business, having worked on a lot of these campaigns, you should really start at 60, especially if you know somebody's going to come at you full steam ahead with a lot of money. So I think it was a strategic mistake to go ahead with this uh, as it was written and perhaps try again in a presidential election year where you're more organized. You know, these tenant groups are getting organized. I mean, everybody sees that. And I think that's another reason if we could try to head that off, that the groups are getting more and more organized and be nice to find a compromise. And having local battles continue to pop up. Yeah. I mean, that's expensive. And it doesn't build a single unit of housing. It's just a misdirection of everybody's energy. Isn't the key question, though, is whether Michael Weinstein, which is the person you're referencing as financing the Yes on 10 campaign, isn't the key question is whether he'll be satisfied by whatever compromise comes out of um, you guys and the the Newsom administration, the possible yeah, Newsom administration, you know, because he could still do whatever he wants, right. right? And, you know, luckily for us, two years ago, it was, you know, uh, condoms for porn actors and prescription drugs. This year, it's rent control. Maybe next year, he'll find something else that he wants to spend $25 million on or whatever it's going to be. I mean, the guy has spent $90 million in three different states on ballot measures. So, uh, you know, let's hope the shiny object is something else next year. But you're right. When you have somebody who can write a big check no matter what the polling numbers say, because they're committed to that issue, then it's troublesome. Why should a tenant vote against um, Prop 10? Well, many reasons. 
he smiles and says. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the, the experience that we've seen from a lot of tenants is that it helps some. It helps seniors who probably are never going to move again. Um, but for everybody else, it makes life more difficult. There will be fewer units available. Uh, in Berkeley, we saw when rent control went into effect, that one city lost 3,000 units of housing. And that means landlords, because they're going to operate with somebody who's going to probably be there for a long time, tend to want to be more selective about who they get in their apartments, people that they know will have the income for a long time, people they know are going to stay there for a long time. And so I think the reduction in the availability is probably the biggest thing. As a renter, I'd say this is probably a bad idea because there's just not going to be that option against me. And the people that actually need the help, people are living on the edge, are probably going to be turned down more in those situations because landlords are going to be way more selective about who they put in their apartments. Can't you make laws to stop that? Well, on paper you you can, but you know you have to qualify people on their income, and you know it's not an issue of race or whatever. It's like as a you know this is my property. I want to make sure I get my investment back. I'm going to make sure this person who has the financial means to stay in there will be there for a while. I mean that's the problem with Section Eight. People get turned down all the time because the money's there, but you know sometimes there's good tenants and bad tenants. There's good landlords and bad landlords and. You know, I don't see how this would have made that situation any better at all, except for some elderly people that are actually have nowhere else to go and probably are never going to move again. Do you concede this, you know, during the research on this, um, some of the things were a little bit interesting to me to find out. Uh, one being that, you know, a lot of good research, a lot of decent research in this area and the supply argument um, seems to be a bit um, overblown. The argument that this would, you know, in, in, in any sort of reasonable form of rent control, uh, decrease the amount of housing production writ large uh, seems that doesn't seem to hold a ton of water. Um, why do you think that 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 is? Do you think you guys have over, over, overplayed that argument a little bit? No, I think people understand the concept of supply and demand. And though there's there's a few studies that you know say it's not as dramatic as we've been saying it is, I think that concept works with people. And I think if you talk, especially since the loss of redevelopment funds in the state, to build an affordable housing complex requires a lot of money. And we you know we've seen projects canceled already or put on hold because of Prop 10 because banks are financial institutions are are fearful that they won't be able to pencil out. Uh, Do you have an example of that? Yeah, well, yeah, there, there was a few, I think, and even in your paper. Uh, but I know the Chronicle had a couple the other day. So, I mean, they're just, they're happening. Why do the realtors care about the outcome of this of this proposition? So they've spent $8 million? Second largest donor against us, if, if you count sort of some affiliates with one of the, the big property companies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why, yeah, I, why are they invested in this? They, as you probably saw, there's two different committees for the no right. campaign. Right. Uh, they've contributed to the other one, so I don't have a lot. No, of No, they gave they gave four to yours as well. Forty, four to yours, four to the other one. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I would imagine it's because there'll be less new housing for them to sell, but I don't honestly know the reason for that. Hmm, it's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah. Particularly when they have something else in the ballot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, they do. And so do we. I mean, we, the, the little known secrets here is that uh, we are one of the biggest contributors to the Yes on One. In fact, we'll be launching an ad today, a half million dollars worth of ads, saying Yes on One, No on Ten, hmm. which is, again, a little unusual. You'd think somebody that is worried about one proposition would be focused on that one. But we think there's a real connection. And that also, of course, helps your argument that you're not doing anything to 
solve the right. problems. Right, which, yeah. you know, I got to yeah. say, we do yeah. hold the higher ground on that. There yeah. were many attempts, as you probably know, with yeah. the legislation otherwise, to try to negotiate a deal, uh -huh. and the Yes campaign wanted nothing of that. Uh, when the UC Berkeley Turner Center came out with a report saying there's got to be a middle ground here, we were, you know, we embraced that to some degree. The other side was like, yeah, no, thanks. Your people aren't credible. So, I mean, with that kind of stance, it was impossible to make one of the legislative deals that we saw on the soda tax and the privacy and other things that went off the ballot. Uh, the Yes side was not interested. It was rent control or nothing. Do you think Costa Hawkins reform is inevitable? You know, uh, it's it's hard to say. I mean, because the economy, we all probably think this is not going to last forever, that markets won't be this tight forever. Uh, there might be some other things, uh, CEQA reform or something that soon to be Governor Newsom might implement that will ease this a little bit more. So the pressure on that won't be so much. Hard to say, but I, you know, I don't think the tenant side is going to give up on it. It's their organizing tool. Give us your closing argument. Vote no. <laughs> no, I, you know, I think this has been a, you know, we started uh, thinking this would be a very competitive and tight campaign. Uh, and that's the reason so much money uh, was raised. And I think we did a very credible job, if I can pat myself on the back here, of making sure that voters understood really what the, the essence of this was in a very clean, easy to understand way. Um, they got the party endorsement, but it really seemed to be meaningless. The latest poll shows that Democrats are opposed to this, <laughs> not as much as Republicans would be, which we thought would be natural because they're anti-government. So... Um, you know, I think we made our case that this would make the situation worse in California, and I think that's been reflected in all the public polling. All right. I mean, that's that's it for me. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. Uh, Excellent. Thank, thank you, you very much. Vote thank early you. and often. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter's California Housing Crisis Podcast. I, again, am Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at mlevinreports. I'm Liam Dillon. I am on Twitter at Dillon Liam. Uh, thanks for listening and go vote. Go vote. <laughs>